Welcome back to the Community Online Podcast. This week, we're joined by teaching pastor Ian Simpkins as we continue the series, Greater Than. If you're new, we'd love to learn your name. Simply text CONNECT to 630-793-6399 and we'll send you more information about community. Remember, you can always find us on Sundays streaming live at communityonline.tv. We hope to see you there. Welcome to week three of Greater Than. It's our series in the book of Colossians. And I know what it's like watching online. It can be distracting at times. So I want to challenge you right now, wherever you're at, if you can, to just put away all distractions, to get comfortable in your chair, your couch. And uh, I'm going to pray for us because I think prayer is absolutely vital. So let's, let's pray together and then we'll dive into week three. God, thank you for the gift of today, of right now, that you are present with us wherever we're at, wherever we're watching from. God, I pray that these words would be your words, that your Holy Spirit would move and convict and restore in ways that only you can, God. We give this time to you, and we love you, we thank you, and we pray all these things in the beautiful name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Um, Have you ever been misled by a label before, like where the, the label didn't actually match the product? Like, sometimes it's, it's really obvious, something like this, right? Those are easily the orangest watermelons I've, I've ever seen. Sometimes it's a little less obvious, though, right? Something like this, which is just cruel. Like, that's what was in the viewer box, and then you open it up, much to your dismay. So, sometimes it's not really clear until the package actually arrives in the mail, something maybe kind of like this. <laughs> I mean, that poor girl, her face says it all, right? Not, not quite the same. Uh, But sometimes it's worse. Like, say, for example, you buy some cartoon-inspired ice cream, right? It's a seemingly harmless purchase. Until, of course, you open it and nightmares, terrifying. That, we got to get that off the screen. I'm so sorry. You can't unsee that. I realize that. Um, Now, it's one thing for labels to be misleading when it comes to, like, ice cream and, and pools. But what about when it comes to our lives? What happens when our label doesn't actually match the content of our lives? Does my label actually and accurately reflect the contents of my life? Now, for a little bit of context, uh, this series, Greater Than, is based on a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Colossae. And Paul has not been to this church. He's writing from a prison. But his friend Epaphras comes to visit him, not only to kind of offer him thanks, but to share with him that there's been there's really been some trajectory shift in this church. They've they've gone a little off track, and Paul is writing them to sort of help course correct a little bit. And he begins this letter by reminding them of what needs to be at the absolute center of all they do. He's reminding them that Jesus needs to be at the center. He is to be greater than anyone or anything else. But sometimes we get off track, don't we? Like, it can be really easy for us to make finances or success or relationships greater than Jesus. And these things aren't bad, per se, 
but Tim Keller calls them disordered loves. We get into trouble when our allegiances get a little bit out of whack, but being an apprentice to Jesus, being a disciple to Jesus, it's, it's not just simply about praying some prayer or some intellectual assent. It's about surrender and allegiance. That's what it means to be a disciple, to be an apprentice of Jesus. So t- today I want to focus in on chapter three of Colossians, and I want to wrestle with this question. What does it look like to live an authentic, Christ-centered life? What does that look like for our label to match the contents of our lives? So to answer that, I want to start with who we are in Christ. So Colossians chapter three begins first by talking about Jesus's position and what we're to set our minds on. And then he says here in verse three, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Okay, so we can, we can all agree that's a little confusing, right? Like you're thinking, okay, you told me to, to know who I am in Christ, and then you're telling me that I'm, I'm dead. What, what's that all about? What, what's really going on here? Well, essentially, he's describing a couple of things. One, he's reminding them first and foremost who their power is found in, but he's also, he's describing the difference between being an observer and being a participant. For, for the person that's in Christ, the Christ follower, Sin has been killed and buried with Christ, but then we're invited to live into this resurrection life. And the good news of that is that our identity then is in Christ. In fact, over 200 times in the New Testament alone, this phrase in Christ or with Christ shows up over and over and over again as a reminder of who we really are. In Christ is your true identity, your true label, not your job not your finances, not your family, not even your theology and doctrine. Who you are is in Christ. Your label is a child of God. Perhaps we could say it this way. What God says about you is the most important thing about you. I believe that with all my heart. What God says about you is the most important thing about you. And he says that you are beloved. No one has the right to define you except the one who made you. And he says, you're mine. You are a child. You are known. You are beloved. So the main thing for Paul, writing both to this church in Colossae, but I believe also for us today, is to remember and realize what's already true of us. They've kind of gone off track a little bit, and he wants to remind them of what's already true. We have to get this. In fact, there's a woman named Elise Fitzpatrick, and she wrote a book called Because He Loves And I love the way that she put it. She said, just in case you're unaware, identity theft occurs when someone steals your name and other personal information for fraudulent use. Most of us are dismayed by this new cyber age crime, and we wouldn't assume that the theft of another person's identity is acceptable behavior. If you've ever had this happen, by the way, it's an awful feeling. I remember my wife's card got stolen years ago, and the guy bought like 25 pizzas over the course of 12 hours, which was bizarre. It's a very weird feeling to have your identity Stolen, but she goes on. The surprising reality, however, is that Christians are, by definition, people who have someone else's identity. They're called Christians because they've taken the identity of someone else, the Christ. Not only have you been given an identity you didn't earn the right to use, but you're invited to empty the checking account and use all the benefits this identity brings. This is so much better than identity theft. It's an identity gift. That's such good news. It's this reminder or maybe brand new news for you that this isn't something that you could earn or merit. In other words, our identity is received 
not achieved. It's not some kind of ladder that we climb to earn God's favor or affection. It's given freely in Christ Jesus. You are far more than your best or worst moment. You're a child of God. Your identity is in him. And when we get that, we begin to feel the freedom of not having to earn our identity. Think about it. If I'm what I do, then I need to always do more to maintain my value. This one is a particular area of struggle for me. I've often bought into the lie that I am the sum of my accomplishments, and the moment I stop accomplishing or producing or creating, well, then my value is lost. If I am what other people say, then I'll always be trying to please people. But if I'm who God says I am, I find freedom and I find rest. But doubt does kind of creep in, doesn't it? Like you might be sitting there thinking, well, yeah, this, this sounds good, but I, I don't actually feel that at all. In fact, I love the way that N.T. Wright put it. He said, learning to believe what doesn't at the moment feel true is an essential part of being a Christian. I find great comfort in that because N.T. Wright is like a theological juggernaut. And he's saying kind of core to this whole thing is that at times you won't actually feel what's actually true of you. This is something that I've struggled with my entire life. Maybe you can relate. In fact, it reminds me of a story I heard years ago. There was a social experiment conducted where they gathered 10 volunteers together And what they told them was that they were going to put this kind of hideous scar on their face with makeup and then send them out into the city to just sort of observe how people treated them. So they had a makeup artist put this awful scar on their face. And then just before they went out to the city, the makeup artist said, oh, I just got to touch up one more thing. And without them knowing, took the scar off completely and sent them out into the city. Ten out of ten of them returned to say that people were more rude to them, that they were unkind, and that everyone was staring at their scar. A scar, mind you, that wasn't there at all. What we believe to be true about ourselves will affect how we live our lives. In fact, I heard a pastor years ago give this example. He said, imagine that when you were a kid, your grandparents decided to put some money in a CD for you, and they actually continued to put money into that particular account, but somewhere in your teen years, early 20s, you you sort of forgot about it. And let's say you began a career and you started a family and, and you fell on hard times. And, and then you lost your job and, and then you were evicted from your apartment and you're really, you're struggling to even put food on the table. All the while, this money was still there. Those resources were legally yours, but you were living in poverty. So often I feel like as Christ followers, we live our lives like that. There's this thing, this life-changing truth that's true of us, and yet we, we live as if there's a big scar on our face, as if there's not money in the account. But Paul doesn't simply stop with a declaration about our identity. He starts there, but he, he doesn't stop there. He's got more to say. In fact, chapter 3 essentially continues in two major moves. Put off the old, put on the new. Put off the old, put on the new. So so Paul begins talking about putting off the old here in verse five. He says, put to death, therefore, which is intense language. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. So, So that's, I think, intentionally intense language. He's not saying, hey, put it off in a corner here or like lock it in the basement. He says, no, put it. To death, And he goes on in verse 6. 
Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices. Hold on to that word practices. And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Okay, so a couple of things that are going on here. Paul is reminding this church in Colossae to step into what is already true of them, of who they already are. I love the way that uh, theologian and philosopher Soren Kierkegaard put it. It says, and now with God's help, I shall become myself. I, I love, that sentence is packed with so much meaning. It doesn't mean that we don't need God's help still. We don't need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. We remember that the power first and foremost is Jesus. He is greater than. But with God's help, I shall become myself. Become who I actually am. Become who God made me to be. Who God knit together in my mother's womb. With God's help, I will become myself. Now note that Paul talking about putting off the old self, he's not just talking about putting off old practices. If you remember in verse nine, he says, we're putting that off with its old practices. In fact, the verse right before that, verse eight, he's talking about all the things that kind of lie beneath and behind the practices. So for our definitions, the old self, the old person is simply the collection of attitudes, emotions, practices, and the condition that I used to be in. Now there's a, uh, an English Anglican priest and theologian named C.F.D. Mool, and I love the way that he put it. He said, the Christian must kill self-centeredness and regard as dead all private desires and ambitions. There must be in his life a radical transformation of the will and a radical shift of the center, essentially turning from me being greater than to Jesus being greater than. Everything which would keep him from fully obeying God and fully surrendering to Christ must be surgically excised. Again, that's, intense language, but I think intentionally so. Mool seems to think that Paul is actually serious about putting off the old, about putting to death this old self. But it's also not just about some like behavior modification either. So often, unfortunately in churches, what we're kind of left with is this list of like do's and don'ts, which if you ever handed that version of Christianity, if you were like me, you saw that list and said, well, those are all the things that I did do, so, so now what am I supposed to do? For example, the word translated greed here is the word pleonexia. I'd love for you, I know we used to do this when we gathered in person together, just go ahead and say the word pleonexia. Gesundheit, that was well done. Okay, so pleonexia actually comes from two Greek words. The first is pleon, which means more, and then the word echion means to have. So pleonexia is basically the desire to have and to have more. The Greeks defined it as insatiable desire. They would describe it like it's trying to fill a bowl with a hole in the bottom. Insatiable desire. It's essentially ruthless self-seeking. It's putting me at the center. Think about it. If the desire is for money, well, that will eventually lead to theft of some kind. If the desire is prestige, it will eventually lead to selfish ambition. If the desire is power, it will eventually lead 
to tyranny. He's not just talking about tweaking some behaviors. He's saying, hey, recognize that there's a hole in the bowl that's this insatiable desire, this ruthless self-seeking. That should not be so of you. Because in Christ, the one who stepped down from eternity entered into humanity as a baby and was obedient all the way to the cross. We are in that Christ. And Paul notes that putting off this old self isn't just about my individual selves either. It's, it's also destroying the barriers between us. A couple of barriers in particular that it destroyed first for these first century Christians, it destroyed the barriers of nationality. In fact, we see throughout history that nations that hated each other, that would have been at each other's throats, now sat together at the table of Jesus with peace and unity. It destroyed the barriers of ceremony and ritual, circumcised and uncircumcised to worship together. To a first century Jew, anyone not a Jew, a Gentile, was considered unclean, but they came together, served together, sang together, learned together. It destroyed the barriers between the cultured and the uncultured. The greatest scholar in the world and the most humble farmer worshiped together and sang together. They celebrated in unity together because of Jesus, because of what he does and what he did. And then lastly, it destroyed the barriers between classes. The slave and the free came together. In fact, it was very common in the early church for the slaves to actually be the leaders in these churches. They came and worshiped. The social distinctions of the world became utterly irrelevant. When we understand what's really true of us in Christ, it changes how we live. Or perhaps another way we could put it is this. Your activity flows from your identity. When you know who you are, it changes how you live. This is absolutely critical for us to understand. And we don't work for God's affection, but we most certainly work from it. We don't do these things so that God will pay attention to us, but because he's given us Jesus freely, because he's given us grace and forgiveness and a new identity, because he's given that to us, we then work from that posture. It changes the way that we live. When we understand who we are, it changes how we live. And I'll be honest, too often, my label doesn't match my life. It could be on social media. It could be around these certain friends. I don't know if that's just being an Enneagram 3. Sometimes there is this insatiable desire to be liked or loved or valued or appreciated, and that will often lead me to portray an image that's, that's actually not true of who I am and what's going on inside me. Sometimes I think we spend so much time simply trying to emulate someone or something else. Like, we talked about misleading labels at the beginning, but we've all seen knockoffs before, right? Like, classics like this. It's not Sharpie, it's Skirple. <laughs> Sorry, that, might, that cracks me up every time. Skirple sounds like, like, a, like a G-rated insult, right? Like you call someone a real Skirple, right? Or, uh, or how, about, how about this product, Dave Soap. I was going to make a Dave Ferguson joke here, but I don't, I mean, the joke kind of writes itself, right? Or, or how about this classic, Special Man. He's, he's not super, but he is, he is pretty special. In fact, I remember when I was in India years ago, someone tried to enthusiastically sell me one of these puppies, a Gibson guitar. Yeah, I, if you're a musician, you probably realize there's a Gibson, and then there's Gibson. And I remember the guy was like really emphatic, and he's like, no, no, it's Gibson, very, it's a very good guitar. And I was like, I, I know Gibson, I've never heard of 
Gibson before, and he just kept shouting, and he kept, he kept insisting. I was like, I think this is a knockoff. I don't think this is a real thing. Being emphatic about our plagiarism doesn't actually make it true. Who, who are you actually? What would it look like for us together as a community to more fully step into that? Often, I want my real life to match my label, but if I'm honest, I struggle. It can be really difficult. In fact, I take a lot of comfort in what the Apostle Paul said to the church in Rome. He says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Can anyone relate to that? I take such great comfort that even the Apostle Paul would often say, even in a letter to a church saying, sometimes I don't understand myself. I want to do this, but I don't. I don't want to do this, but I keep going back there. You know how you want to live, but it can be a struggle to actually live it. So how do we actually begin to live like a truly authentic life? Well, Paul not only says to put off the old, but he also says to put on the new. To put on the new. This is a really important reminder because so often in Christianity, we talk about the things that we're freed from, and that's part of it. But we're also freed for. It's not just freedom from something. It's also freedom for something. We're to do something in its place. We're not just simply taking off the old. We're also putting on the new. So what does it mean to put on the new? Well, Paul says here in verse 12, he says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, which is an important distinction here. He's saying you're chosen, you're holy, you're set apart, you're loved. Being loved comes first. The motivation to then do what he's instructing us to do doesn't come so that God will love us. He's like, because you're chosen and you're holy and you're loved just as you are, do these things. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. He says, because you're holy and chosen and dearly loved, we should look and talk and act and tweet and post differently. Our lives should look differently. And Paul says it's all about what we choose to clothe ourselves in. Like, look at this list, for example. If you're really honest, would you say that this list describes you? I'll be honest, this often doesn't describe me at all. When my kids are stomping on my last nerve or I'm feeling stressed about something with work or whatever it is, that list often doesn't describe me. I want you to take a moment, though, look over that list. Does it describe you? Does it describe your role as a parent or a spouse or a coworker or a neighbor or a friend? Maybe ask yourself some of these questions. Am I compassionate towards people in need? Am I compassionate towards people in need? Does kindness permeate my relationships with my neighbors? Am I humble as I work through challenges in my marriage? Am I gentle and patient when dealing with difficult people? We, we, we may not always feel compassionate, kind, or patient, but Paul says we can choose by the power of the Holy Spirit to clothe ourselves in these things. When we put our faith and hope and trust, when we surrender and give our allegiance to Jesus, he gives us a new self. We receive a new self that we can't accomplish on our own. We could never earn or merit it. And when we do, he begins to take our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. It changes the way we see people of suffering. It transforms our focus and our attention and our energy and how we spend our time and our money. It transforms us from the inside out. And when Paul says, put off the old and put on the new, 
he's not talking about an optional elective. This is core curriculum in the school of Christ, but better yet, it's an invitation. It's an invitation to be who we really are. God isn't saying, I want you to jump through these hoops to become someone you're not. He's like, no, I see who you actually are. Be who you really are. Paul isn't simply making rules for us to abide by. He's calling us to be who we really are. Think about it like this. I have a two and a half and a one and a half year old. And I'll be honest, most of the time, it's a real struggle for me to respond graciously with patience. But in my best moments, if my eldest, for example, maybe pushes his younger brother, rather than yelling at him, rather than sending him to his room, I'll get down on his level and say, you're a Simpkins, and we don't treat people like that. That's not who you are. And again, I do this so imperfectly, but in my best moments, by the grace of God, it's not about like, you need to stop, you need to cut that out, but instead reminding him of who he really is. I want to spend a lifetime speaking that into him, reminding him who he is. Paul is saying, this is who you really are. Personally, I think the world is dying for authentic Christ followers, people who are actually acting as who God made them to be. There's a Scottish author and pastor named William Barclay. I love the way that he put it. He says, it is most significant to note that every one of the graces listed has to do with personal relationships between man and man. There is no mention of virtues like efficiency or cleverness, not even of diligence or industry. Not that these things are unimportant, but the great basic Christian virtues are those which govern human relationships. Christianity is community. It has on its divine side the amazing gift of peace with God and on its human side the triumphant solution of the problem of living together. What Paul is instructing both the church in Colossae and us today is an invitation to be our true selves. This is why we are always talking about small groups and community cares and how we actually live our lives. We put off the things that previously were just focusing on me and put on a new way of living. And after we're all dressed, Paul gives one final instruction in verse 14. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Love is why Jesus left heaven. Love is the force that binds us all together. It makes it possible to keep clothing ourselves in compassion and kindness and peace. And God himself is not just merely loving, he is in essence love. It's not just simply the verb he does, it's the noun he is, and we are made in the image and likeness of that God. Which means that the truest thing about you is that you are loved. May we live as if that is true. Let's pray together. God, thank you for that reality, that truth, even when we don't feel it, God. Wherever we find ourselves today, would you, God, speak life and hope and meaning and purpose back into our souls? God, help us to cast off, to put to death that which is toxic, that which isn't honoring to you. Help us to clothe ourselves in these things each and every day, God, and help us to bind it all together with love because without it, it's just a clanging symbol, God. We thank you and we love you and we pray all these things in the powerful healing name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen.